Thank you. Good morning again. Y'all are having a great Sunday morning. It's good to be with you all again. If you have your Bible, I'd invite you to turn to Psalm 40. It's going to be our sermon text this morning. And we're just going to jump right into it. All right, this is Psalm 40, and this is God's Word. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see in fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs on my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who you, excuse me, may those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you that you have called us here once again to this place to worship you. And we pray now that as your word goes forth, as your word is preached and proclaimed and your good news goes out, that your Holy Spirit would lead it to do exactly as you have willed it to do. We thank you that it is during this time that you sing your promises over us, Lord. And we pray now that we would take heart and that we would be pleased to hear it. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In your son's name, amen. So memory. Memory is a powerful thing. In preparation for this sermon, I did some wonderfully half-baked research, and I read a few articles of psychology and neuroscience, and many of them had some interesting things to say about the importance of memory and how it works with identity formation and helps us to orient ourselves in this world, but 
I'm not going to try to regurgitate any of that for you because as I was reading these articles, what I found was that many of them just sort of stated the obvious. What many of us already know firsthand, that our recollection of the past is very much what shapes who we are today. I'm sure all of us can look back in time and recall some of those memories that have, from our childhood that have helped to shape us, helped to form us, like it or not, for better or for worse. We all have those memories that we wish we could forget, and yet they linger on and they stay with us. And yet we also have those other memories, those sweet memories from our childhood, prayerfully. Ones of love and great affection from our parents, the ones that we recall with fondness, these ones that have helped us to shape us for the better in this world. And we become almost more mindful of these things in parenting. Sabrina, my wife, and I, Remember when we first became parents, we became quite aware of our children's memories, not necessarily of what they would forget, but perhaps more fearful of what they would actually remember. And why? Because memory plays an incredible role in helping us gain a sense of self, a sense of who we are in this world, like it or not, for better or for worse. Your past has shaped you. It has made you who you are today. Memory is powerful. And within our own faith, memory is crucial. The imperative continually set before Old Testament Israel is what? That they would remember their God and the great works which he had accomplished on their behalf. And they were instructed to raise these monuments, raise these Ebenezers, just to help them remember God's great work on their behalf. And so by remembering, they would know who they were. By remembering what God did in the past, they would gain strength for not only the present, but also for the future. In this way, faith was not only about individual memory, the individual experience of one particular person, but memory was very much based in community. Tell your children and your children's children what God has done for you. Community has memory. And along with that, we also see that much of their trouble, much of Israel's difficulty, was what? When they forgot. When they forgot what their Lord had done. Forgetfulness is this constant accusation made against them throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah 17 says, For you have forgotten the God of your salvation, and have not remembered the rock of your refuge, or Psalm 106. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. This is the great sin of forgetting. But here in Psalm 40, David is revealing for us the role of memory positively within our own faith. Because the psalm begins with a memory, and it's from this one memory that David's whole life is then oriented. And so what I want to do this morning is just walk through this psalm, and I want us to look at three different components that we see here, three different things that memory does. And we're going to just call these points this. Remembering for praise, remembering for prayer, remembering for hope. Remembering for praise, remembering for prayer, remembering for hope. So first, remembering for praise. This psalm is really connected to all those which have come before. And if we look at Psalms 37, 38, and 39, these psalms are marked by this theme of waiting. Waiting for the Lord to come. 
waiting for the Lord to act and to rescue. But here, in Psalm 40, David now speaks no longer waiting, but is now set firmly on the other side of God's deliverance. And he says this in verse 1, I waited, waited for the Lord. He bent down and heard my cry for help. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. This beautiful and poetic language reveals God bending down like a loving father, raising his son up out of the pit, raising his son up, getting down in the mud and the dirt to deliver his son. This is the sweet memory that David has. This is the sweet memory of his God that he carries with him. And as a church, God's people, we can all sing this psalm along with David as we ourselves are able to recall our own salvation. We're able to recall our own moment of God's great deliverance. That God has saved us. This is what we remember. And so then, the question is, what do we do then with our salvation? Well, as we see with David, it is this deliverance, this God acting in the past to save him, has acted as the catalyst for David's praise. This remembering is not just lip service, it's not just the stale record of what God has done for him, but it's this very event of God's salvation that has postured David's whole life, particularly to be a life of praise and of worship. David says, by God's great act of rescue, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Here, David, he's not simply drawing for people's attention. He's not simply paying lip service, but he's attempting to arouse greater faith and greater trust from those around him because of what his God has done for him. And here, David is really teaching us something about the nature of worship as it relates to our own memories, as it relates to the past. Why is remembering God's deliverance so crucial here? Because it's the basis of praise. What God has done for us in the past is the basis of our praise. It's the whole reason we're moved to praise. And this might seem like a very simple point, but it's worth considering for a moment because it's one that we are so often to forget. We know as Christians we are called to be a people of joy and praise. It's what we've been told to do. But if we're honest, like Israel... We are prone to grumble. Like Israel grumbled in the wilderness, we are prone to complain. We know the command, but we can't always quite find the words. We can't always quite muster up the right words to praise our God. Does this mean, however, that we have forgotten how to praise? Does this mean that we have forgotten how to worship? C.S. Lewis, he makes this very interesting point in reflecting on his life before he came to faith. He says that before he came to faith, he used to see God as this vain woman. That's how he likens him. He says that she was a vain, he was like a vain woman starved for compliments. And he couldn't understand this, of why God was always demanding to be praised, always commanding to be worshipped. And he thought that God just always needed to be admired for some reason and could not understand why. But then, after coming to faith, he makes this wonderful insight. He says this, 
But the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of praise in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. You see, Lewis's point here is that we are all worshipers. There's no question about that. It's what we've been created to do. And even despite sin, this original function, this original purpose has somehow remained intact, that we are all worshipers. But now it's just a really a matter of who or what we worship. We're all singers of praise. It's just a matter of what song do we sing. We're all already telling the world about something or someone. It's just a matter of who or what we're telling them about. David doesn't say, you put a song in my mouth. He says, you put a new song in my mouth. David, just as you and I, was already singing about something. But when God rescued him, there was a new record put on the player. When God bent down in the mud and the mire and rescued him, he gave him something else, something greater to sing about. And as David's remembering and recalling and reflecting on this sweet memory of the wonderful Lord's rescue of him that compels David to do what all praise does, to tell other people. David says in verse 5, You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them yet they are more than can be told. And in verse 9, he says, I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. This is the new song that God has put in David's mouth. It's the song of God's deliverance. It's this act of remembering what God has done, the sweet memory that has then made David's mouth overflow into praise. And again, we might see this as a very simple point, but it's one that is crucial for us to remember because as we think about the words of our own mouths, when we think about our own praise, we must ask ourselves the question, What song do we normally sing? What song do you normally sing? Are we a people marked by praise? Are we a people marked by this rampant joy and genuine enthusiasm about who our God is? We're like that new Netflix show or that news report or last night's sports game. We have to tell someone about it. We have to talk about it. We have to say, look at what our God has done. Or like Israel, are we a people who have forgotten the melody and forgotten the words of the song? Or maybe we just think the song's all played out. 
And maybe we're just scanning the radio for that new single, for that new hit to drop. That's the question for us this morning. And we're going to leave it there for right now. We're going to come back to that question a little bit later. That's our first point, remembering for praise. Now we're moving to our second point, remembering for prayer. Psalm 40 is a very interesting psalm that's actually made it quite difficult for folks to categorize because if the psalm were to stop here at verse 10, then we would say this is a psalm of praise. But the psalm goes on. It goes on for seven more verses, which actually makes this more so. The psalm fall under the category of lament. This is a psalm of lament. David has been saved from distress, but as we see, David still continues to face more and more difficulty. And this should sound familiar to us because this is really our experience, isn't it? Christ has ultimately saved us, prepared us, and saved us for the world to come, and yet here we are, continuing to face difficulty after difficulty after difficulty, hardship after hardship after hardship. And this is what I love about Psalm 40, because as happy and as joyful as the psalm is, it doesn't lack this sense of realism. It's a very honest psalm. It's not just all smiles and bliss. It's not superficial and shallow, but it's refreshingly honest. David has been delivered, and yet he continues to be in need. But David's memory of what God did yesterday, we can see here, continues to serve him today. Here, David is not in despair. He's not left hopeless. But like, excuse me, not like Israel, who would see God's grace poured out for them one day and then forget about the next. Here, David remembers what God has done for him. And that gives him great confidence, knowing that just as God showed him grace yesterday, God will continue to show grace today, and God will continue to show grace towards him tomorrow. It's not a question. Look at verse 11. David says, Just as I have not restrained my lips to sing your praise, so will you not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. That's not a question. That's a statement. David really is in trouble. David really is experiencing danger. And yet David's posture towards these new troubles are not without a memory for how God dealt with the old troubles of yesterday. David's prayer here is confident. That's the first thing I want us to take note of. David's prayer here is confident. But the other thing I want us to note here is that David's prayer here is honest. It's not just David's act of remembering which has given him a right view of God as a God who delivers and as a God who saves. But David's, rem- excuse me, David's memory has also reoriented David, not only to have a right view of his God, but also to have a right view of himself. Because what does David say here about himself? He said that God is a God who delivers, but here David says this about himself. He says in verse 12, For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs on my head. My heart fails me. So who is David? Who is David, the giant slayer, the king of Israel? Well, by his own account, David is a very weak man. 
David is a sinful man. A man whose hands are dirty and whose heart gives out. David is a man whose sins are many and whose righteousness is few. David is a man who needs his God. And we might be tempted to think that God's salvation would just continually to pour out for him because here David's been praising God. He's been doing what he ought to do, which is remember God and praise him. And so we think, of course, David's going to save, excuse me, God is going to save his loudest singer. But that's just not true. Because what David says about himself is honest, that David is a sinner. And this, this is what compels David to pray. It's not David in strength. It's not David in abundance. It's not David in greatness, but it's David in weakness. David looks internally within himself and he says that there's nothing good there. There's nothing good there. And when David looks out, outside of himself, into the world around him, what does he see? He sees those who seek to snatch my life, those who delight in my hurt. In verse 14, David knows who he is and where he is. David is a sinful man in a sinful world. And he's honest about that. And this is the point I want us to note this morning, that David's recollection of the past, of God's past deliverance, has not only given him a correct view of God as a God who saves, but has also given him a correct view of himself as a man in need of saving. What is made evident from this psalm is that just as remembering our past deliverance, gives us the right image of God, so do we also see a right image of ourselves. And that is because in our salvation, we get the clearest picture, the clearest picture of who God is and who we are. I'll say that again. In our salvation, we get the clearest picture of who God is and who we are. Look at how David ends the psalm. In verse 17, he says, As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. That's who David is, but who is God? He says this, you are my help and my deliverer. So this psalm, Psalm 40, even though it seemed to begin with tremendous piety and it seemed to begin with the person who's always doing the right thing, it actually tells us that this psalm is for sinners. And that prayer is for sinners. Prayer is for the poor and needy. Prayer is for those who find themselves overcome by their own sin. Prayer is for those who have been overcome by this world. And prayer is for those who just can't cut it. That's who prayer is for. But do we really believe that? Do we really believe that? Do we really believe that about our God? Do we really believe that about ourselves? In our first point, we ask the question, what kind of song do we sing? But here we can ask another question, what kind of prayer do we pray? Or perhaps we could take it even a step further, do we even pray at all? Or have you forgotten? Have you forgotten the God of your salvation? Have you forgotten the God who stooped down in the mud and in the mire 
to save you, someone in need, someone who is poor, someone who is sinful? Have you forgotten how to pray? And how have you forgotten how to praise? If the Old Testament teaches us anything, like Old Testament Israel, we learn here that we are a people who are in constant need of being reminded. But what is the reminder that we need? I could stand up here and I could tell you at this point that God has commanded you to praise. And I could stand here and I could tell you that God has commanded you to pray. And I would be perfectly right in doing so because the truth is he has. But I don't think necessarily that that's going to help you very much. And here's why. Because the command to do something doesn't actually give you any power to do it. The command to do something doesn't actually give you any power to accomplish that very thing. One observation I've made, and I don't mean to offend any of you in, in this or any of your home decor, uh, but you know these signs that have become very popular, these ones that say uh, peace or joy or happiness, these ones that we like to hang in our home, the ones that are at Home Goods or Marshalls or Ross. I think these signs are, are very funny because they don't actually give you the reason. We think that our biggest problem is that we're forgetting to do these things. We think that our biggest problem is forgetting to do what they command us to do. That we think that our biggest problem is that we forget that we need to be happy. That we forget that we need to be a people of praise. And you could hang a sign in your house that says praise. And you could hang a sign in your house that says pray. And your intentions could be very good. But to be honest, I don't think it's actually going to work. I don't think it's actually going to help you accomplish these things. Our problem is not that we forget the command. Our problem is not that we don't know what we should do. Our problem is that we forget the reason. We forget the reason of why we praise. We forget the reason of why we pray. And that is what we need. We need the reason. We need the good news. That is what we've forgotten. Unfortunately, this psalm gives us a tremendous reason. This psalm is very helpful in helping us to jog our memories for why we praise and why we pray. And this is going to bring us to our last point, remembering for hope. You see, there's this part in the psalm that actually none of us are able to sing. And there's this part in the psalm that none of us are actually able to pray. In verses 6 and 7, you might have noticed we skipped over those. David, he writes this curious clause. He says this, In sacrifices and offerings you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. What David is taking note of here is that God cares more, what God cares more about in worship more than the formality and more than the ceremony, is the heart behind it. And in showing this, David is reflecting on the nature of these 
Old Testament sacrifices, right? That God had commanded these people to come and make an atonement for their sin by offering up these animals and sacrificing these lambs and these bulls in order to make an atonement for them. But what David is saying here is that, yes, you might make your offering and you might make your burnt offering and your sacrifices. Yes, you might do these things. But you know what God cares about more? It's that you would never have to make them in the first place. It's that you would never have to say, I'm sorry. Because your heart was so filled with righteousness and your heart was so already filled with God's goodness and your heart was already so ready to do all that the Lord had commanded that you'd never have to say, I'm sorry, in the first place. So David notes that. But then he says this. He says, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will. O my God, your law is within my heart. Who is David talking about here? Who is this one who actually delights to do God's law? Who is this one who actually delights to do all that God has commanded him to do? As we read before, it can't be David. This isn't what David says about himself. David says this about himself. He says, My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs on my head. Not that your heart is within my excuse me, not that your law is within my heart, but he says this my heart fails me. David can't be talking about himself here, and I don't think that any of us, any of us forgetters, could say these words and sing this song. Well, the author of Hebrews, in chapter 10, he tells us that when Christ came into the world, he spoke these words, and he identified himself as the speaker, as the one who has come down to do what none of us could do, and that is the will of God, perfectly and perpetually. And in so doing, Christ became the perfect offerer and the perfect offering. And he did this by living a perfect life on our behalf. Because like we talked about down there before the children were dismissed, because the sinless life is not just about not sinning. The sinless life is actually about doing. It's not just about not doing wrong. It's about doing what is right. And whereas we are prone to forget, whereas we are prone to forget to praise God and yet praise everything else, whereas we are forget to pray because we think that perhaps we might have some power to do something here, because we forget that, we are not without a covering because Christ did that for us. Christ did that perfectly for you. Christ praised God perfectly for you. He interceded and prayed to God, relied on God perfectly for you. So that when you can't remember the last time you did these things, you are not left without a covering. So that now, you and I are positioned in a much better place than David. 
Whereas David wrote about these things, having not seen the speaker, you and I have seen the speaker. And this is our good news of salvation. This is our good news of deliverance. So that now, when you can't remember the last time God shined his face on you, and life has blocked out all memory of God's goodness to you, you have not been left without one sweet, sweet memory for hope. Hope for tomorrow, hope for the future, hope that Christ will come again. And so that all of us now, because of what Christ has done, all of us are now able to sing more loudly than David. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. This is our great salvation for praise and for prayer. Let's do well to remember it this week. Amen? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that we do not praise you as we ought. And we know that we do not come to you often enough as we ought. And Lord, yet you are gracious with us and patient. And you are kind. And you know this. And that is why you sent your Son. To sing that perfect song for us. To sing that perfect bit of praise on our behalf. To live that perfect life, the life that relied on you fully every single moment of it as Christ was constantly going out in prayer and only doing as the Father willed. Lord, we thank you for this. We thank you for this and we thank you that you have given us this message. You have given us this reason, this better reason and this better memory. We pray now that as we leave this place, as we go out, and even now as we sing your praise, that you would help us to sing even more loudly than David ever did. You would teach us to be a people who tell others about you, not just because you have commanded us, but because we know the reason, and that reason is sweet. We thank you, Lord, that this is your good news. In your son's name, amen.